welcome to episode 1616 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Doing pretty well. Yeah. Well, we've got some huge and heartening news today. Oh, yeah. Fun to talk about. We haven't had a a whole lot of that lately. No. (laughs) But... We woke up to, or at least became aware of, the news Friday morning that the Marlins had hired Kim Ang as their general manager, the first woman to be a general manager in the majors or for a men's team, I guess, in any of the major American sports, and also the second GM of Asian descent in MLB. This is huge news. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just a very exciting thing to, how do I want to put this? It is very easy to know that a thing is like literally possible. Yeah. That there are many, many qualified women who work in baseball, perhaps none as qualified as as Kim in terms of her longevity in the sport, the roles that she's occupied both on the team side and with the league, the sort of resolve and resiliency of her interest in being a general manager. It is it is one thing to know that it is literally possible for a woman to be the general manager of a major league baseball team, and it is quite another to see it literally happen mm-hmm. and to know that that barrier has been broken, to know that a woman is going to sit in that seat, as you mentioned, an Asian American woman, someone who has had to deal with the dueling challenges of being a woman in this industry and a person of color in this industry and having to navigate that and being so qualified for so long. Right. You know, I was messaging with Lindsay Adler this morning about it. You know, she's a baseball lifer. Yeah. I know that there was talk in the days leading up to this announcement that the Marlins were thinking out of the box when it came to their <laughs> GM hire. And I... I understand sort of the the sentiment of that from people who like maybe aren't thinking about their choosing their words too carefully because she will literally be the first woman to occupy that role. But in a lot of ways, like a hire doesn't come more conventional than, yeah, no, than her. The resume is like, you know, this right. person should have gotten this job long, 15 years ago. Yeah, so, a long time ago. And yeah. it, so it's it's exciting in a lot of different ways. I I hope that this will not sound snarky, but like everybody's going to have to learn some new names now, right? <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going to have to familiarize themselves with some new talent because mm-hmm. I feel like every time we've had this conversation about like, who will the first woman GM be? Like Kim's name is so readily available because again, she has been working in the game for such a long time and she has been so close in the past, but not quite there. And we're all going to, Y'all are going to have to learn some new names. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this many times on the podcast. I remember Jeff and I had Christina Carl on maybe two and a half years ago when she wrote about when this might happen. And just a week ago, we were talking to Jen Wolf, and yeah. we brought up the prospect of when this might happen and what it would mean. And it could have happened at any point during that time or long before like Kimming was there and uh, could have been hired by anyone and yet until it actually happened it just felt like 
you never knew when or if it would happen. Like, yeah. obviously, someday, but it needed someone to just finally do it already. And you look at her experience in the game, and, you know, she was in the White Sox front office for years in the 90s. She was a Yankees assistant GM back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where I assume she probably got to know Derek Jeter a little bit. And then she was a Dodgers assistant GM for years. And then she's been working as a high-ranking executive in the commissioner's office for almost a decade now. And she has interviewed for so many GM jobs over the years. Yeah. And, you know, some of those interviews, I'm, I'm sure, were good faith interviews and legitimate and she was genuinely considered but you have to think that some of them were not or she would have been hired by now because she was listed as a candidate for really I mean about 20 years now I think is at least when people started talking about her as a, a very qualified candidate And it wasn't clear whether she still wanted the job, you know, whether she had been discouraged by all of those interviews that didn't lead to a hiring or whether she had decided she didn't want it or what. But it's great that this happened finally. And let's hope that it opens the doors for others. You know, as Jen was talking about last week, there's still a a pipeline problem here. And so, you know, there aren't as many women as you would like who have the experience in baseball that Kim Eng does, but maybe it just took one finally to kind of break down the door, let's hope. And, you know, now you can't describe it as out of the box, not that you should have anyway, but even if you were inclined to do that, you know, even that now is erased because it has happened finally. Yeah, I think that her sort of desire to occupy the role was always sort of an uncomfortable part of that conversation for me because on the one hand, I think that when you have the opportunity to sort of step forward, not that there's an obligation, but I think that people are aware of sort of who they can bring with them when they take on big scary mantles that no one's had before but I was always a little uncomfortable because people would be like well it it should be Kim and it's like well does Kim want that job like I (laughs) Kim has a pretty great job like she was a very senior person uh in the league office and so you know not that that it wasn't in the right place but I'm like you know we want we want opportunity to be genuine and real and for our understanding of it to be broad and for a lot of different kinds of people, all the different kinds of people who like and play and care about baseball to have opportunities in all of the different roles that the league has to offer. And some of them are going to be big senior team side roles and some of them are going to be in the league office. And so I'm so happy for her and I'm happy we can put that part of it to rest and that we can just kind of, like you said, like this is, this is our part of the box now. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's very exciting. The last couple days of vacation, when Twitter has sent me a notification that there is news for me, then it has always been bad. (laughs) It has been bad every time. Yeah. And this, this was not bad news. And it is, it is very exciting. And, you know, that team had, uh, I think a a weird 2020 is like a very charitable way (laughs) of describing the, the ups and downs of the Marlins season. But yeah. That is a an exciting baseball team. They're coming off of, you know, a postseason appearance that no one really had them pegged for. They have exciting young talent. And it just feels it feels very ripe for possibility. And that's mm-hmm. such a cool thing to be able to say about the first woman to occupy that role. Like 
This is just, it feels optimistic in a way that we, you know, it's kind of thin on the ground yeah. a lot of the time in the baseball news. So it's very cool. And I, you know, I it made me made me feel emotional, but it's just very exciting and it's really a treat in this hard year to have a piece of news like that that you can just feel unabashedly glad about. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited to see the direction that she steers that organization in and what she's able to do with that roster and the team that she builds and, you know, the opportunities that her hiring opens up for other women in the game and other underrepresented people in the game. It's just, it's a good day, Ben. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the fact that it took this long to happen, I don't think you can really crow about it. And, you know, not that baseball no. should be slapping itself on the back and saying, you know, good job, we did it. It took so long. I guess, you know, I would have preferred that it had happened much sooner in any sport. But I guess I'm happy that baseball was the one to finally do it you know would have been nice if it had happened decades ago yeah. but baseball has had such a, a shoddy track record when it comes to diversity in front office hiring you know whether it's gender or racial or you name it so it's kind of nice i suppose that uh you know when it finally happened it was a, a baseball team that did it even though it took far too long so as you said, I, I think it's a pretty enviable situation to walk into, a, a team that just made it back to the playoffs under the strangest circumstances, but still, and had a winning record and has a, a good base of young talent. You know, there's something to build on there. So I think it's a, a pretty good situation. And yeah, let's hope it's the, the start of something rather than an isolated event, but it's it's really nice. It's just, uh, you know, long overdue, but yeah. it happened. Yeah, I think that you're right. I don't think that baseball should pat itself on the back <laughs> too much, but I think mm -hmm. we all get to be just unabashedly jazzed for her and mm -hmm. for what this means. And, you know, I don't want to be like Debbie Downer. I think it does. We, we have to remain vigilant, right? Like one is not enough. One mm -hmm. is not enough. But today, we just get to be excited. Mm -hmm. And then the next time there's a GM opening, we can have new names and we can, yeah. you know, I think that there's a lot to be said for being able to, how do I want to put this? Like expect better, right? And it's a lot easier to expect better when the first one of a thing has been accomplished. And right. now we get to expect better and mm -hmm. we get to demand better. And that's really exciting too there's optimism in that also so mm -hmm. cool day ben yeah all of the other news has been bad though they're like <laughs> news for you i'm like look i'm on vacation and we still have to be engaged with the world but also i am tired please mm -hmm. stop telling me this news for me this news for me is a bummer <laughs> well speaking of that we will uh <laughs> do an interview today 
with Eno Saris from The Athletic and former Major League pitcher David Ardsma about the foreign substance problem in baseball, about pitchers cheating, using sticky stuff that they're not supposed to be using. And this has been, you know, frequently in the news, I think, this year, but also has been maybe more in the news this week because Trevor Bauer won the National League Cy Young Award, and he has been connected to some extremely suspicious spikes in his spin rate. And, of course, he has been an outspoken critic of foreign substance use in the past who from all appearances has uh, finally embraced it himself to some effect so we will talk to Eno and David about his experience with it personally and you know about how many people are using this stuff in baseball I wrote about this back in July you know just did a good follow-up on it so I think it's sort of a scandal waiting to happen potentially, and it's something that now that we have uh, good measurements of spin rates, we can actually see what the impact of this is, and it's so widespread that it's an interesting question and problem. How does MLB address this? So we will get to that very soon. Just a couple of other things I meant to mention. There was another GM hiring, uh, far less notable, I suppose, than Kim Ang's, but Perry Manassian was hired as the Angels GM. He was formerly the Braves assistant GM. And, you know, this was uh, mostly interesting to me, I think, because from everything I've heard, that is just not as desirable a GM job as uh, most others, just because Artie Moreno is a, a big-time meddler. He does what you don't want owners to do, which is come in and dictate baseball decisions. And so... I don't know whether that affected the candidates that the Angels could attract here. I know in Ken Rosenthal's report about this, he mentioned that the Angels reached out to some of the game's top current executives only to be rebuffed. And Rosenthal mentioned Chris Antonetti with Cleveland and Rays GM Eric Neander and A's GM David Forst among the executives that the Angels were interested in and did not reciprocate that interest. All of them seem to be in fine situations and maybe they're happy with those situations. So that may or may not have anything to do with the Angels situation specifically. But that is, I think, one of those challenging positions. Of course, we would like to see someone get Mike Trout back to the playoffs at some point. But I think... That's one of those cases where everyone looks around at some of the cheapskate spending that the Angels have done with their minor leaguers and their scouts and then also the meddling. And uh, I think that sort of scares people off. But this is the fourth consecutive first-time GM that Moreno has hired since he took over as owner not counting, I guess, Jerry DePoto, who had been an interim GM previously. And maybe that is because Moreno wants to retain more control. And so you have to recruit people who have not had the GM job before and are happy to do it just for the title or maybe will not expect to have as much authority or, you know, could be a coincidence. I don't know. But that seems like a, a concern that people probably had about that position, which is not to say that Manassian is not qualified or a good candidate because he's been in the game for years and has been mentioned as a prospective GM plenty of times before. I know that it will be surprising that I'm about to say this because rich people are famous for their self-reflection, but if I were Artie Moreno, I'd be like, hey, my baseball team employs Mike Trout, and not very many people want to work for me. 
Right. What's that about? (laughs) And, you know, the the fact of the matter is that very wealthy people are often insulated from consequences. And so self-reflection, not always their strongest suit. Who's to mm-hmm. say? But yeah, it it is, you know, we spent part of uh, last week talking about the surprising lack of process in Chicago. I don't think that you could say the same for the Angels. It looked very early like they were going to hire Dave Dombrowski, and then they seemed to talk to a great many people. I think, what, the candidate list was up to 15 at yeah, one point? something like that, yeah. So I guess good job having a process, you guys. But um <laughs> Yeah, I think that there probably is something to the idea that newer GMs are going to be malleable in some way or at least less likely to push back. And it just... (sighs) Mike Trout chose to stay there. So I don't want to be overly... You know, we don't have to parachute in and rescue the guy. Like, he made a a choice. He's an adult. He Mm -hmm. was given a a big contract and decided he wanted to stay in LA and try to help that team win a world series. But I hope that this regime has uh, better success than the last one, because, you know, the lack of trout in October is, it's bad for us. Yep. It's a bummer. It's bad for us. Also, we were informed of an unwritten rules controversy (gasps) this week by listener Scott in Arkansas. I was not aware of this, but this is an interesting one. There is an unwritten rules hubbub in NPB, in Japanese baseball, and uh, Scott linked us to a story here on the website Sora News. So I'll read the headline, NPB player sparks controversy by not letting a retiring pitcher strike him out. So that's, uh, that's the controversy here. A touching tribute to a player's career or insult to the sport. In Major League Baseball, pitchers often go out on a bittersweet note as a testament to having given it all they had. Greats like CeCe Sabathia and Nolan Ryan both had extremely disappointing final starts. Even Cy Young himself gave up eight hits to his last eight batters. It's sad, but in a way good, because the pitcher can rest assured that they had contributed as much to their team as they possibly could before the end. Nippon professional baseball, though, sometimes does things a little differently. When a pitcher is set to retire, there is an unwritten rule that their last batters will allow strikeouts so that the pitcher can go out on a high note. Since this usually happens at the end of a season and in cases where the outcome isn't critical, it usually doesn't spark much controversy. However, on November 10th, the Hanshin Tigers faced off against the Yomiuri Giants in what was to be Hanshin pitcher Kyuji Fujikawa's final appearance of his career at the top of the ninth inning. Fujikawa struck out the first two Giants batters. The final batter of Fujikawa's career was Shinosuke Shigenobu, who, after letting one ball go by, went ahead and cranked the next pitch into right field, where it was easily and unceremoniously picked off for the last out of the inning. Although it was a fairly normal end to an inning, commentator and former Hanshin great Masayuki Kakefu lamented, Oh, he was so close, too. I guess Shigenobu didn't know referring to the possibility that the batter didn't know that he was supposed to let Fujikawa strike him out. It's unclear why Shikinobu connected with the ball. Perhaps he just didn't care about the custom. He may have also attempted to fake a miss only to accidentally hit the ball. Sakamoto, who was Fujikawa's first strikeout of the inning, is a star player for the Giants and was brought in as a pinch hitter. Some are presuming this is because he has the skills to appear to try and hit the ball while striking out. Regardless of his true intentions, this led to debate online over the sportsmanship of what Shigenobu did with people coming down on all sides of the issue. And the Giants were leading 4 nothing 
late in that game, so there wasn't much chance of the Tigers' comeback, in case you were wondering. And this was the second-to-last game of the season for each team, and the Giants had already clinched the only Central League position in the Japan Series. So this is a, an interesting one, I think, because... Uh, yeah, this there are you know some analogs. I think in MLB sometimes you will see like uh, you know a, a pitcher will groove one for a sure. batter in his last at bat, or you know like the Cal Ripken All Star Game example. Maybe this was more common in the past. I know Denny McLean grooved one for Mickey Mantle at the end of his career in 1968 as a tribute to Mantle because he had been one of McLean's favorite players. But in that case, McLean was actually reprimanded. The commissioner Spike Eckert sent him a letter scolding him. But the intentional strikeout to end a great pitcher's career, I mean, there's probably precedent to that, but I don't think it's widespread. Like, just to to give some context here, like, Fujikawa has uh, pitched in NPP for 17 years. He has a 2.08 career ERA there, almost 250 saves. Like, he's been a great reliever. Some may remember him from his brief time in the majors with the Cubs and the Rangers as well. But I just, I looked back to see, like, Mariano Rivera's final appearance. And, you know, they were both uh, great relievers, both in their 40s at that point. And Rivera, his final outing went line out, Ground out, ground out, pop fly. So no strikeouts, intentional or otherwise. And I don't remember anyone caring about that. But this is a a thing that you're just supposed to sort of whiff on purpose. And I asked a friend of the pod, Kazuto Yamazaki of Baseball Prospectus, about this. And he said, yes, it's fairly common for pitchers when they are facing a retiring hitter. They're required to pipe a fastball down the middle. So that's the opposite. And he sent me a video of Takashi Saito's last game and in this case he was facing Toru Hosokawa and it's like the most obvious looking strikeout you've ever seen like it's just I'll, I'll link to the video so everyone can see it it's just totally transparent like he's just waving wildly it doesn't look like he's even trying to hit the ball and as that article mentioned it's probably pretty tough to make a convincing attempt at looking like you're trying to make yeah. contact if you're really not but this is a, a tradition that we definitely don't have to the same extent in the states and so this has become a controversy in Japan I'm trying to decide what I would want yeah because like there's the you know the institutional expectation of what you do in that moment and the the behavior and all that but I'm trying to think about what I would want if I were in his shoes as the pitcher I think I I think that I really hate being like patronized. And right. so I I would just want you either need to really sell it. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to just strike out on purpose or I'd like to to see give it the the old college try. Yeah. Right? Like you've especially if you have that long of a career, like you've had ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Nothing about the final, you know, the final hitter you pitch to is going to change your legacy in the game. No. Right? It doesn't diminish the accomplishment. It's not like you're like I had 17 great years, but now <laughs> like I got a, you know, a, yeah. a little bloop single off of me, so forget it. I have to pitch 10 more so that I can overcome the the <laughs> the slight that was done to me. Right. I don't know. I think I'd want them to to try. And like if that's going to be the tradition then like have them take three pitches looking, you know? Like yeah. I guess it could be more than that depending on how 
how uh, <laughs> how well you got it that day. But it just seems that's surprising to me. But I also yeah. have never been a professional athlete, so maybe my my preference for you know, someone being deferential to me in that moment would be different than I'm anticipating. That's very possible. Yeah. And it's a, a different culture. It may yes. be just, you know, a respect for seniority and, and experience and your elders. And maybe that's a, a nice thing if it's just uh, showing deference, if it's a sign of appreciation for that player's career. I suppose that's uh, perfectly fine. And, you know, Fujikawa at this point is no longer a, a very effective pitcher. I think he's, you know, he's 40 years old and, and didn't have a great year. And yeah, I think if it were me, I would feel like either sell it so well that I don't realize <laughs> that you're just, uh, you know, rolling over for me in this final right. at bat or, or try because yeah, like, you know, if I, if I get, out if I get a strikeout great like I mean you know presumably he's he's gonna finish the game one way or another so he's gonna get an out somehow and so it just seems to me like you know if you've been pitching for like 20 years at this point it, it's not like you know it's gonna taint the whole thing if like your your last guy doesn't strike out or, or gets a hit or something I, I think I would get over that just fine so well, yeah Presumably, if you're retiring, you have some understanding of where your skills lie relative to yeah. their peak, right? You've mm -hmm. you've done that soul searching and decided it's time for me to hang it up, you know. Right. And there are any number of factors that can kind of complicate that, how much it's your decision versus not. But like you're probably aware it's time to be done. So mm -hmm. you're probably pretty honest. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to like judge the cultural practices of uh, of another place cuz this might seem very uh normal but it is it is such a funny <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how this would interact with some of the other unwritten rules <laughs> that we have in the states yeah. were it to to become the norm here cuz I think that like you said like there's there is some precedent for kind of letting someone go out on a high note we yep. we've we've seen that before and mm -hmm. there's nothing as an aside, like if you decide to do that, I would read it as patronizing if you if you didn't sell it right. But like that's a nice thought yeah. to say, hey, I you know, how about one more for the record books as you mm -hmm. as you walk out the door? You know, that's that's a nice thing. We mm -hmm. all stand to be a little kinder. And if the stakes are so low, right? If it doesn't matter, why mm -hmm. then why not? Maybe I've changed my mind, Ben. Yeah, I mean, players always have something at stake, even if it's just uh, their earning potential or their stats or something. But I don't know. For me, I feel like saying something, you know, everyone coming to the top step and applauding or tipping their cap or whatever, you know, putting a nice message on the scoreboard, like all of that would be plenty for me, I think. But you know, if this is the tradition, then I guess it's nice in a sense, although I wouldn't want someone to be vilified for, for not going along with it, really. So I guess we have enough unwritten rules over here yeah. that I'm kind of happy we don't have to worry about 
this one too <laughs> but and then like you know what if the person might retire but you don't know for sure what if he hasn't announced that he'll retire then do you have to do it just in case he retires i don't know it just seems complicated see that seems that seems very fraught because what yeah. if you're like you should retire <laughs> right. i'm gonna let you strike me out and then you might have you might have been very rude <laughs> yeah that's true you could there's, give unintentional offense yeah, yeah there's a lot of there are some man such stakes it's mm -hmm. really hard to do your job when other people are watching it turns out <laughs> yeah all right and a uh, couple quick things did you see the ryan tapera news i don't know if that uh, uh, came across I, your your twitter uh, notifications i just felt so i just felt so terrible <laughs> Yeah, speaking of uh, respect or, or lack thereof, I, I guess Ryan Tapera was, uh, I don't know if he was getting mocked, but uh, maybe Rick Hummel, who was an ML MVP voter and uh, voted for Ryan Tapera, he was uh, maybe catching some flack on Twitter because Ryan Tapera got a vote. He got a last place vote, which means that he has a point forever and ever. Ryan Tapera has, uh, let's see, an 18th place tie for 18th place finish in NL MVP voting. And I think this is pretty harmless, but it's just sort of amusing to me. This happened because Hummel, evidently, when you vote, you, there's a, a drop-down menu, and Tapera was pretty close to Trey Turner. And Hummel meant to vote for Trey Turner, who was a few spots down, and inadvertently voted for Ryan Tapera instead. So Ryan Tapera... The undistinguished Cubs reliever who has been fine. Uh, he had a perfectly <laughs> fine year. Yeah, he was fine. He's you fine. Know, he, he threw 20 innings. He had a sub four ERA. <laughs> he struck out a bunch of guys, you know. Yeah. Fine year. No fine. one would have said anything negative about Ryan Tapera until he got an MVP vote. And so... Now, forever and ever, whenever we get some question about, like, what's the strangest MVP vote anyone's ever gotten? Or, I mean, this wouldn't even be at the top of the list for, like, worst season to garner an MVP oh, no. vote. But definitely no, close, one of the, the more, yeah, no, but kind of uh, unremarkable season out of nowhere name to end up there. And future generations will probably wonder what the heck happened yeah. here <laughs> with Ryan Tepera. It's like when we look back at votes from decades ago and we're like, what were they thinking? Yeah. And uh, we know what it was, but the, the future generations, unless they do a deep dive, they will not immediately understand what happened here. So I have two things to say. The first of which is, so I've only, in my brief tenure in the BBWA, have only had one vote. My first mm -hmm. year in the organization, I had, I had an AL Rookie of the Year vote. That was the year that Jordan Alvarez won AL Rookie of the Year kind of unanimously. It was easy to yeah. vote. But you, you know, you vote for fewer down ballot candidates when it's Rookie of the Year than when it's MVP. But yeah. my memory, and I hope that I'm not misremembering this is that I had to I had to type in the mm. name and you have to type in the last name and the only time you include a first initial is if there are guys with the same name and that was a year where I had given and I can't recall now where in in my ballot I placed him but gave Brandon Lau a down ballot vote and mm -hmm. was very nervous to do it properly because Nate Lowe was also yeah. eligible and uh, I was worried that would get mixed up and then I would have voted for Nate Lowe mm -hmm. for third place for 
AL Rookie of the Year, and people would have been like, that's weird, Meg. Why'd you do that? (laughs) And really all you're ever wanting when you're voting for these things is for no one to remember what you did. (laughs) You just don't want anyone to remember what you did at all because if you did, you probably did something funky. But I remember thinking, if I mess this up, I will make my peace with it. And so I think that that Ryan Tapera should have been allowed to think that someone thought he was MVP worthy. <laughs> I feel so bad for him. He is, as an aside, this is very funny, the top three most searched players on Fangraphs right now are Jose Abreu, Ryan Tapera, and then Freddie Freeman. I was one of those people searching for Ryan Tapera. Yes, so, so <laughs> I, I feel bad that like, because like you said, he's not the worst He's not the worst guy to get a 10th place MVP no. vote. Hardly mm-hmm. the worst guy to get that. And and somebody was so embarrassed that they felt the need to clarify, no, I'm a goofus who messed up <laughs> rather than thinking he was MVP worthy. Yeah, I you understand why they had to clarify because yeah. otherwise people will say, oh, it was this favoritism or something. Not, I mean, Rick Cummel covers the Cardinals and this right. is a Cubs player, so yeah. it's, it's not like a homer vote or something, no. but... People were still perplexed, understandably, but yeah, too bad for Tapera because, you know, maybe there was a moment where he saw his name there and He's he like, thought, oh, wow, cool. <laughs> yeah, and his then... his news for you was about himself and it was great. Right. Yeah. And it was like, wow. Ryan Tapera was like the, the sixth trending topic where I am on Twitter. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, what happened? And then I got nervous and I thought something had happened to him. And mm-hmm. then I saw what it was and I laughed very hard. <laughs> and then yeah. I felt bad because, you know, he had that moment and then it faded. Yeah. Pretty harmless mistake. I mean, I guess uh, Trey Turner would have been happy to have an additional vote, but sure. really it's a pretty frivolous and sort of fun story. Yeah. So. Yeah. In fact, Tapera quote tweeted a link to an ESPN story with the headline, Chicago Cubs Ryan Tapera lends MVP vote thanks to misclick. And Tapera said, one man's mistake is another man's claim to an NL MVP vote. Thanks, Rick. Honored by the vote with a cry laugh emoji. So clearly he was having fun with it. And lastly, I guess uh, Jay Jaffe did a, a post that I will link to that I just wanted to point people toward. He surveyed the Fangraphs audience, Jeff Sullivan style on how Fangraphs readers felt about the 2020 rules changes, and the votes are in, and they're not super surprising, I guess. I I don't know that they would reflect the majority of the baseball-following populace, but perhaps not surprising for Fangraphs readers. They are like 3-1 to in favor of the universal DH, which uh, I'm pretty happy to see. But like more than 3-1 to against keeping the extra innings rule. So Sam's enthusiasm for that rule not mirrored in the rest of the Fancraft's readership. And uh, also almost 70-30 against seven-inning games in doubleheaders. So in fact, people are more against the extra innings runner than seven-inning doubleheaders, which uh, surprised me a little bit. And people are pretty split on the three-batter minimum That's just such a nothing rule, really, that it seems like uh, people don't care a whole lot about that. And expanded playoffs-wise, only 5% of people thought, yes, let's keep it the way it was in 2020. And uh, then, you know, not many people wanted seven teams per league. About one in four said, okay, let's expand it, but to six teams per league. And then, like, 23% 
thoughts leave it at five teams per league with a best of three wildcard series and almost 40% said leave it at five teams with a wildcard game so as it was before this year and I guess the expanded playoffs is what the readers were most passionate about so they care the most about that particular thing not staying so I I think I am mostly in line with the readership here. I think I am too. Ben, I just had the strangest sensation. You told me about a thing that was on Fangraphs and yeah, I didn't so know. <laughs> you didn't read or edit yet probably. Yeah. I've been doing a very good job, Ben, of yeah. not working and mm-hmm. that has meant not really engaging with the site because, you know, once you do the one thing, it's like give a mouse a cookie, but it's yes. like really messed up and I don't get a cookie. So <laughs> that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good that's a good idea that Jay did that. Good yeah. job, Jay. That was smart. Yeah, there was some good stuff this week. More people should do polling projects. I'm saying this now, and I will say it to the to my <laughs> colleagues like directly because that's yeah. more useful. But you know, people people don't poll enough. They should poll more because it's really easy. Easy content, yes. Easy Crowdsourced, content. love it. Yeah, yeah. So the the site survived. You took a vacation, and uh, I'm sure your your absence was felt. But you can take a vacation and the, the world will keep spinning. So yes. that's good to know, I guess. Yeah, it it is. It is unsurprising because Dylan and, and John Taylor, who helped with editing too, do good work. And mm. I work with smart people who write good stuff. But it is just always nice to see it confirmed. It's like, you know, y- you know the sun's up there, even if you don't see it rise. But sometimes you're like, hey, that was cool to <laughs> confirm. Right, Yeah. <laughs> All right, and I have a closing stat blast for you here before we get to our guest. This is from Matt, who sent this question in September, and I finally got an answer to it this week, so I will share it here. Matt said, It occurred to me while watching last night's Giants game that this is the 10th season in which Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt have been the starting shortstop and first baseman, respectively, for the Giants. That means that they have recorded a lot of 6-3 putouts together. I assume they would be high on the list of most ever recorded as a pair, but I have no idea how to look that up. I also can't think off the top of my head of any famously long-lived shortstop first baseman couples to check Crawford and Belt against. Do you have any ideas on how I could figure out how many putouts those two have recorded and where they rank on the all-time list? So, yeah, the Brandons have been in that infield since 2011. They have racked up a lot of putouts, and I guessed... Bill Russell to Steve Garvey from the the Dodgers' longest-running infield. I thought that might be above. And Sam guessed Tony Lazeri and Lou Gehrig, although Lazeri was mostly a, a second baseman, but they overlapped for a long time. So those were the two combos that we thought of. But I got an answer this week from Adam Ott, our listener with a RetroSheet database, who, by the way, is in the market for data-based research positions, especially in baseball. If you're looking for anyone, he's been very helpful with our stat blast. He's just finishing up his master's in statistics, and he was able to give me an answer here. 
using all the play-by-play data that's available going back to 1918. Not quite complete for those earlier years, so those players will be slightly undercounted. And Sam and I were roughly on the money there. We came close, but we missed the very top combination, the most putouts ever. In retrospect, I feel like I maybe should have thought of it. And if you want to pause the podcast for a second so you can brainstorm, feel free. But Brandon Belt and Brandon Crawford have completed 1,580 putouts together, 6-3 putouts. That's a lot. That is the 34th most of all time. And of course, there are fewer balls in play, fewer grounders now than there used to be, although there are also more games. And it is also the most by far of any active combo. This is uh, at any position. You have to go all the way down to Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo. They Mm. are the, the next highest and they were at like 802 entering this year so uh, they're like a little over half as many combined putouts as the brandons so no one even in the neighborhood but if you look at the 6-3 putouts list only the brandons are at 13th most of all time but the overall list all combinations of positions Number one, Craig Biggio and Jeff Bagwell, which oh. uh, in retrospect seems pretty obvious. And Yeah, Ben, I can't believe you didn't get that. I went, oh, to make you not feel bad because I <laughs> yeah. was like, clearly. Yeah, tip of your tongue. Yeah, <laughs> they had 3,056 putouts together. That is uh, a lot of putouts. They were uh, 4-3 putouts, of course. And then Lazari and Gehrig were next at 29-10, Russell and Garvey at 27.82 and I'll read the rest of the top 10 Ryan Sandberg and Mark Grace Pee Wee Reese and Gil Hodges Dick McAuliffe and Norm Cash Chase Utley and Ryan Howard Ron Say and Steve Garvey so Garvey's on there twice Ron Santo and Ernie Banks and Davey Lopes and Steve Garvey. So mm. that, that Dodgers longest running in fields, like all of yeah. the members were, were on there. But uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And uh, some other recent ones, Brandon Phillips and Joey Votto were next. Jimmy Rollins and Ryan Howard, Brooks Robertson, sure. Boog Powell, Cal Ripken, Eddie Murray, and on and on. So I will put the spreadsheet online so you can all look position by position and admire Adam's handiwork here. So... 6-3, the leader, was uh, Bill Russell, Steve Garvey. And 5-3, the leader, was Ron Say and Steve Garvey. 4-3 was Biggio and Bagwell. 2-3, the leader is Yadier Molina and Albert Pujols. Oh, sure. Yeah. And 1-3 put out, so your your pitcher to first base, is Freddie Fitzsimmons to Bill Terry. And uh, your 3-1 put out is Willie McCovey to Juan Marichal. So, yeah, good good data here. I will uh, put the whole thing online so you can peruse it at your leisure and remember some guys. After you had retired, how many days do you think it would take you to go, wow, I haven't done that thing in a while? (laughs) Yeah, it must be second nature. Yeah. Brandon to Brandon. I wonder... When that combo will end, is uh, is Belt a, a free agent this winter? Let me just see. Uh, signed through 2021, so yeah. no, not yet. So the Brandons will ride again, and uh, they can keep climbing the leaderboards because they're both signed through 2021. All right, so we will take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Enoceris 
and David Ardsma to talk about fern substances. Official Baseball Rule 6.02 states that the pitcher may not apply a foreign substance of any kind to the ball or have on his person or in his possession any foreign substance or attach anything to his hand, any finger, or either wrist. Most Major League pitchers do not abide by that rule, which means that, as Eno Saris put it in a piece for The Athletic this week, your favorite pitcher is probably cheating. To talk about why and how they're cheating and what MLB can do about it, we are joined by Mr. Saris. Hello, Eno. Hey, thanks for having me on, Ben. I, you know, uh, this piece was just a, a another salvo in a, a long string that we've been reporting. I mean, you and I and and other people and um, right. Uh, it's uh, I don't even know how much new stuff it had in it, but uh, <laughs> you know, you got to keep keep updating the uh, the story because it is. I think it's a real story. Yeah, I think so too. And we are also joined by former Major League pitcher David Ardsma, who has a cold and maybe some foreign substances in his throat right now, but is joining <laughs> us nonetheless. Hello, David. Yeah, I definitely have some uh, foreign substances helping me out here a little bit. No, it's great to be on here. And I don't want to make sure everybody knows this right out of the gate. I never cheated. Ever once. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's very believable. So, uh, you know, <laughs> you uh, surveyed some people in the game when you were working on this piece, players and coaches, and what was the sense that you got of what percentage of pitchers are using something that they technically are not allowed to be using? Yeah, it's funny when you survey someone, you're really just asking what's happening in their little sphere. So it's it's maybe not the greatest data point, you know, because it's you're just asking around you what's happening. <laughs> um, and so there were a lot of people who said 100%, which told me something. Mm -hmm. But there was also, you know, a consensus that it was more than half. Nobody said less than half. And uh, the median answer was over 75%. So um, it was... Uh, it was one of those things, most, I think, is is the answer. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'll put this question to both of you for the folks who have not followed all of the reporting here. Let's just take a step back and talk about what the the benefits of using a foreign substance are for a pitcher. Why would somebody uh, elect to be part of that 50%? You know, I can speak from a sort of a research standpoint. It adds about uh, 300 RPM in terms of spin rate to your fastball, uh, to your breaking ball. And um, I don't know if the spin itself is inherently valuable, but that produces movement. So um, it produces more ride on a fastball, on a four-seam fastball, and it produces more drop on a, on a breaking ball, uh, both things that are, have been shown by research to be beneficial. So, David, uh, I, I don't know what you want to disclose about your own experience with foreign substances, either personally or as a witness, but what can you tell us about, I guess, what you've seen and what you think the benefit is? Well, well I'll say this right out of the gate is I will feel totally fine to talk about whatever I did, what other, whatever everybody else did. I won't necessarily say names or anything, but I'll probably stay away from a little bit from an organizational standpoint on <laughs> what they might be doing what those guys might have been doing. I obviously had nothing to do with that. 
But from a player's standpoint, what's really neat is seeing the data now, seeing how the pitch is affected, how your fastball is affected, your slider, your curveball split. In my instance, you know, that's what I really used it for. Seeing how the data, how it's influenced, where back in the day, I mean, this stuff's been around forever. We've been using pine tar since basically since the first moment they could start using pine tar. (laughs) And... But you generally did it because you just felt like you had a better grip of the ball. You felt like you could manipulate the ball better. And so it's really neat to see how the data basically backs up what you've always felt. You just didn't know what the what necessarily the outcome was. You you knew you made a better pitch. You just didn't know what the data said behind it. So it's really neat to see the data backing up what you've always kind of known. I think that's a, a really instructive thing also because I think that the technology – and the data together have led to a little bit of an explosion of this because now you're always throwing in front of a rap soto. You're always throwing in front of something. And you know, now you can say, oh, you know, this works better than that. And there is actually even research that suggests that that every finger type, every skin type has its own kind of ideal uh, grip substance. And so now you, everyone can find that. I mean, they're just always in front of the machine. So you'd say, oh, you know what? It works better if I use this instead of that. And so we're kind of optimizing this one little thing. Yeah, and so the league-wide spin rates just keep increasing year after year after year, and that could be because teams are just uh, seeking spin and, and they're looking for pitchers who have high spin already. That's probably part of it. But do you think another part of it is just that pitchers are using this stuff more or if not more, maybe more effectively? Because as David was saying, pine tar goes back forever. But as I think Rob Arthur pointed out in a piece for Baseball Prospectus recently, it seems like maybe people have kind of cracked the code here when it comes to what substances to use and what mixtures of substances to use and how and when to apply it. So would you attribute the skyrocketing spin rates largely to that do you think if i could speak on that is i think sometimes we're putting the cart ahead of the horse and we're saying like i'm sorry like i've messed with all the stuff that's out right now pelican grip you talk about in the article and and a lot of other stuff um gorilla grip is another one and those type of things were always around and i remember the first day i got to the big leagues i mean they opened up basically a toolkit (laughs) <laughs> and said, get to use, have fun. Here's firm grip. Here's pine tar. Here's guys would be bringing stuff from Venezuela, from the Dominican. And it's all this <laughs> unique, you know, and it's, you know, shaving cream. You're, you know, you basically look like you're shaving your face out there, but you're actually just trying to get better grip on the ball. I think the difference is it's a, it's a combination of what we're looking for from pitchers and the use of the substance. So a lot of times in the past, like we're, they were trying to throw down, throw sinkers. F- rising forcing fastballs were not the thing that pitchers used. That was a rarity. That was a commodity. If you had that, you didn't know what to do with it, but it worked. Now it's we're trying to find those pitchers with the high spins, really with better vertical movements, better approach angles of the plate, and we're combining this stuff with it. So it's always been there. It's not that like guys are just figuring out what works for them. That's always been there. We've always been tinkering and playing mm-hmm. with it. It's that perfect combination of that substances with the pitches. And where in the past, guys weren't throwing the pitches, I don't think, that really needed it. But now we're, we're seeing how useful it is. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I, one one substance that was really funny that a pitcher told me about was uh, he scraped his bong and used the bong resin uh, for, for his grip substance. <laughs> that's a first. I, I think maybe you're right. Maybe it's not about Rapsodo. Maybe, maybe it's about the bongs that are people using. <laughs> well, and, and you know, you touch on this in, in the piece that you wrote. There's also the complicating factor of the ball itself, right? That there are some characteristics to the ball that mm-hmm. even if you set aside the search for spin are incentivizing pitchers to use substances just so they can truly get a better grip on a slick ball. In your reporting, have you seen there being any kind of real trend that might be related to changes in the ball that is incentivizing increased use? Or is it just that spin is sexy and this is sort of a coincidental bit of timing? Well, I mean, I did talk to a pitcher who went to Korea and he used grip substances in America and he did not use them in Korea. And he said, partially it's because you know, the uh, they, they pat you down at the mound, partially because the ball is stickier. They have a tacky ball over there with, with better seams. And, and so, you know, all that. And also he said the rosin is different over there. He said the rosin dries better. It's some sort of, we use rock resin here and not there. I'd, like, I'm not a rosin scientist, but, you know, there, there are things that we can do on that level. And, and the one thing that's interesting to me, I think I don't want to jump too far ahead, but like, we, we could screw with the ball again, but there is, it seems like a very much risk that we don't do that much about strikeouts by screwing with the ball and the home runs go away. And then we've got a brand of baseball that no one really wants to watch. There's no homers and a bunch of strikeouts. Yeah. And do you get the sense, David, that this is sort of passed player to player more so than from above? I mean, there are certain teams that have maybe come in for more suspicion than others, but it seems like this is so widespread. And as you said, you know, it it just kind of gets introduced to you on day one in the majors or maybe before. I mean, I talked to pitchers who were doing this in the minors or even in amateur ball. So is it just sort of this dark art that kind of, you know, is passed from generation to generation more so than you know, it's coming from the team itself. I would say it used to be a lot more generational. It used to be like, hey, the old veteran shows the, the young punk, you know, exactly what stuff he should be using. And they usually blew him off back in the day. But now, because of all the stuff, because of what Driveline's done, because of how much, let's be honest, how much Trevor Bowers really talked about it and put it out in the open, you know, I think organizations now are seeing how useful this is. And they're the ones promoting it they're the ones talking about it where all of this would have happened but the timeline would have been stretched out a little bit longer like they would have figured it out on their own eventually but now it's kind of like first day you're you're brought into camp you know you're brought into that that post draft camp we already know everything about your pitches already do we know exactly how it moves we've already highlighted the guys that can use more spin guys that you can use more vertical movement and those guys you're isolating. Those guys you're saying, all right, what can we do more? How can we help you? And there, don't get me wrong. There's a certain group of guys you don't even want to mess with. Just let them pitch. Let them do their thing. And if they raise those questions, yeah, you, you know, you help them out. But I think it's it is pushed quicker. But at the same time, it's it's always been there. So there's really been no difference. It's just now it's. I think guys are learning. They they've learned how to use it earlier, so they're more comfortable with it. To where in the past it would have been a little longer process. So you brought up Bauer. That was inevitable. So 
Dower won the Cy Young Award this week, and you know clearly he had a great season. You could quibble with whether he was the most deserving candidate just based on the quality of the opponents he faced. But regardless, he had a good year, and not suggesting that he had a good year purely because he was using foreign substances. He's obviously been a good pitcher in the past, but certainly seems as if he started using something that he hadn't been using before in September of 2019. And you know, you wrote about his single inning experiment back in 2018 when his spin rate spiked for an inning and it seemed quite clear. He sort of, you know, hinted that uh, he had used something and the same thing happened very suddenly, very dramatically late last season and continued into this year. And it just seems pretty brazen. I mean, it's uh, it stands out. It's like the most dramatic sudden increase in spin rate that any pitcher has had in the sample of seasons that we've been able to measure these things. And he just won the Cy Young Award, which, you know, whether or not it's because of that, it coincided with it, which seems like it could be some sort of scandal, perhaps. You know, it gets mentioned by some people. It doesn't get mentioned by other people. But what do you make of that apparent experiment you know ah, man i have so many thoughts it's it, and they <laughs> don't they don't go in the same directions i mean I, I i in some ways i feel for him because he he seemed to try to shine a light on it to say you know hey this is happening and you can do something about it baseball and then when they didn't you know he kind of seemed to like well you can't beat him join him yeah of course that sounds a lot like what we said about barry bonds Um, which makes me uncomfortable. So I don't know. I don't know if I want to go down that too far, but I mean, he obviously tried to do something about it and baseball in your reporting, you've, you showed a a memo where baseball Mm -hmm. announced that, you know, they were going to do something about it and they spent a year doing something about it and they fired one clubhouse attendant. Right. And I think there's uh, some sort of pending lawsuit there. It was the the Angels clubhouse person who was supposedly providing foreign substances to visiting pitchers, I mm-hmm. think. And the guy sued and said it was defamation and that he never distributed an illegal substance and he was made a public scapegoat. And I think MLB and the Angels are trying to get that lawsuit dismissed. I did. I did talk to a pitcher after the piece uh, ran. He said, "Oh yeah, Anaheim was where we always went to get the good stuff." <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! Um, and I will also say that we we could focus on Bauer, and I don't. And I'm not going to name any names, but I have to say the the best pitchers in baseball. Their hands are not clean. <laughs> oh, yeah. man, that was bad. <laughs> but, but like the best pitchers in baseball are often the ones that, you know, people are like, oh, I learned my mix from that one. And, oh, I learned my, you know, proprietary grip mix from that guy. And he has those good stuff. So th- there's definitely, this is not just, it's not like Bauer and a couple relievers. That's That's one of the things I was trying to get across in the story. Well, and I think that there's, and you know, David, you might be the right person to speak to this point, but it is curious. This is a performance enhancer. It seems to be obviously thought of in some ways in a way that is very similar to the way steroid use was thought of, which is, well, everybody's doing it, so it's probably fine, but it is categorically different than that in a way. I'm 
I'm curious about the psychology of sort of reconciling yourself to what is technically a form of cheating, even if everyone or 50% of everyone or some vast preponderance of everyone is doing it. How are players sort of mentally differentiating these things from one another to the extent they are? I guess they they might not be and might be thinking of them as sort of of a piece, but they're comfortable with it anyhow. But if they're not, what's the what's the wiggle room that they're granting themselves to be adding spin to the ball and enhancing their performance, but not ingesting a foreign substance and so able to go out on the mound every five days or, you know, every other day and allow this to enhance their performance? That's an interesting question because it raises a lot of weird, weird ideas because you can easily like make the same argument for steroids, make it for pine tar, all this stuff. I don't, I see them as two totally different things. Yes. It's cheating because the rules say you can't do it. At the same time, I think it's almost like the rules were written to prevent guys from doing it because it kind of gave an unfair advantage. Where, whereas, honestly, steroids, I, I, I put that in a whole nother bucket. I, I say, like, I do not agree with the whole argument of, like, well, some guys do it, so we should all do it. I, I, right. I think it should be a natural game. I, I completely believe that. Now, push that line as, hard, as far as you can with science and everything. And so, and testing everything needs to be on top of it, but push it. Now with the foreign substances, with with pine tar, all that stuff. For me, I just see it as an enhancement of what you're already doing. So if you, it doesn't, it does make you control the ball a little bit better, makes you spin it better, makes you move it a little bit better. At the same time, guys are using it to hold a bat. Guys are using it in the field. Heck, like, let's be honest. I never had to use pine tar if I didn't need to. If I didn't want to, I, I would never have it on my body. My third baseman has it all in his glove. My catcher's right. got it all lined up in his glove. I mean, right. cool, yeah. but it's totally legal for them, right? It's totally legal for his glove to be just caked, and when the ball goes around the horn, he throws me the ball. And honestly, it's probably too much pine tar at that point. And like, <laughs> So there's a million different ways around it that are totally legal. That's the problem with me with all this is, yeah. oh, my God, it's so bad. It's so legal. Now, don't be Pineda and put it on your neck like an idiot. Don't, you know, <laughs> don't have it all over slathered on the back of your glove like an idiot. I do. I love the, the game where you're trying to hide it. You're trying to not be so obvious with it. And I'll, I'll be honest. You can watch any video of me after every pitch. I put sunscreen all over my arms. I mean, I played in Seattle. I mean, come on. Why would I need sunscreen? <laughs> and I, all of my arms, but I, I would only had it in the middle of my fingers and then I'd get rosin. And I'd even tell the umpire, I'm like, look, yeah. I'm going to wipe it off and I'll wipe it off. But come on, my hand's so sticky. Come on. Like, like my shirt would stick with my hand. And so it's, but like, I've got no issue with it. I, I love it. I love that guys want to use it. And to say almost 50%, come on, 99% of guys are using it. And the only ones that don't just don't feel like they need it. They've tried it. Trust me. They've every one of them have tried it. And they've all tried it in a big league game. It's just a matter of like, hey man, some guys like this, some guys like that, some guys like rosin just because it feels good. Honestly, I didn't like that much pine tar on my fingertips, but I loved it in my, between my fingers because it made my split nasty. And I liked it. Wow. Yeah, David, it's interesting. You bring up the, the, the sunscreen thing. I had some pushback where a couple of pitchers were like, I don't use anything. I was like, nothing? And they were like, just sunscreen and rosin. I'm like, <laughs> so there is a differentiation. I don't the do league. drugs, just weed. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so that's why I think if some people are like, oh, you know, no, 99 is too much. I think 
they might be putting sunscreen and rosin in its own thing. But but the sunscreen and rosin is why it's so unenforceable. Like you cannot tell a person who's outdoors that they can't have sunscreen on. Exactly, and that's a it's an interesting point you brought up earlier about um about Korea. I believe you're talking about Korea. I went in 2008. We went with the Red Sox. We went to Tokyo. And we played the the Giants, we played the Tigers out there, and then we actually played a game against the A's. Their balls were amazing. I didn't need anything. Mm-hmm. I think like you know, I normally have my sunscreen, my rosin, I'm ready to go. And they give me the ball. I'm like, dude, this is great. I threw my first split and I'm like, yeah, that's why all these guys come out of here with splits, because it's nasty. And the ball moves so well with that stuff. I love those balls. David, what do you make of the argument that for safety reasons you need to use something? And and some hitters will even say, I want them to use it because I want them to have control. I don't want to get beamed. And pitchers will say it's so I don't hit someone in the head. <laughs> Is that legitimate at all? When when you're playing in Baltimore in August and it's like 95 with 95% immunity, I'm telling you honestly, every single hitter wants me to use pine tar, wants me to use something because I don't that your ball gets so slippery but outside of that eh. okay i've used this argument before but it's such bs <laughs> okay <laughs> that's that was we always my main argument it. oh it's for it. grip <laughs> but come on dude i hit like eight guys my whole career and like three of them were on purpose <laughs> so it's like come on <laughs> oh spicy yeah come on like it's such a neat it's such an argument it's like the go-to argument like because you can't argue against it like oh well I mean, just looking out for the hitter. That's a nice guy. Like, no, come on. <laughs> well, I hate to see what we do uh, without all the pine tar because hit by pitches are at an all-time high. So <laughs> if really, if the pine tar uses is that high and the hit by pitches are that high, man, you guys have no command. Yeah, right? We got no excuse <laughs> at that point. I think, honestly, like, hit by pitches are high because guys are throwing nasty pitches. Guys are trying to throw. Yeah. The day and age of control and command and really going out there, giving you seven strong, hard innings, they're over. Mm-mm. You're trying to throw the hardest yeah. four innings you can in your life. And when you go out, that's, mm-hmm. and that's one of the issues with the game. We're promoting strikeouts so much that we're developing strikeout pitchers. Well, strikeout pitchers tend to walk guys or hit guys. No big deal. Because if you strike out to an inning, who gives a crap if you walk one? You know, and then you're going to get a pop-up, so the inning's over. So we're developing all these guys with these nasty pitches. Well, nasty pitches, with that comes, it batters. You know, it's like, get over it. If you don't want to get hit, get out, don't bat. So within that environment of incentives, right, you want guys with a lot of spin. You want guys who are going to strike a bunch of guys out. What is the appropriate mechanism of enforcement if, despite those incentives, we decide we really want to cut down on this? Which I don't know that, you know, I know that, you know, you've reported on this, Ben, you've reported on this. There is some desire on the league's part. I don't know how sincere or sort of heartfelt that desire is, given the fact that they haven't done anything and that Trevor Bauer did just win the Cy Young, basically daring them to come and like search his locker every night. So what are the potential enforcement mechanisms we have here, both the the actual procedure that you think might be useful and who should be doing the enforcing? Because I think that there is a reasonable concern that if you aren't consistent with the enforcement, that there is the potential for bias against particular kinds of pitchers, particular kinds of people pitching. What are the the mechanisms at our disposal here? And are any of them sort of equal to the task? I think it's terrible. I think that the, the, the way you do it is terrible. And that's why nobody wants to do it. Have you ever seen an MMA check-in? 
you know, you know the answer that I have not. <laughs> <laughs> not a big okay, MMA well, head over here. <laughs> before before an MMA match, the umpire in this case, I don't even know what they're called. I'm not that much of a of a, a fan, but the the uh, the the referee that must be yeah, the ref. called. He comes up and he puts his hands in the fighter's hair and he touches him all over the back of his neck and he basically just feels him up all over making sure that he doesn't have uh, i guess a weapon or something and i think it would have to be that intense on the mound in front of everybody i think it would make everybody in the stadium uncomfortable because you're talking about tucking it in in little parts of your glove you're talking about your belt you're talking about you know so many pitchers have long hair i think you're talking about behind the neck you're talking about touching behind the ears you're talking about all these little places you can hide stuff i think it would make i think it would be bad for the labor labor ownership discussion before the cba i think it would be terrible optics and i think it would lead to more bad blood between owners and and the player i just i think it just i think that it just makes everyone feel really uncomfortable they just that's the type of enforcement we'd have to do yeah when i talked to people when i wrote about it in july it it sounded like at least from some people if they were really aggressive and vigilant about it and they empowered the umpires to come out and check all the time that that would have some effect of course like if you just leave it to the managers then a lot of the times they're not going to challenge because they know their own pitchers Mm -hmm. are doing the same thing so i thought that one way that you could do it and it seemed like from you know talking to someone at mlb sounded like they were at least thinking about this was looking at stat cast and spin rates and monitoring for sudden jumps which wouldn't help if someone had been using this thing the whole time (laughs) yeah (laughs) but if there was a trevor bauer situation where suddenly like all of a sudden from one game to the next it's way way up then make sure you cheat right away (laughs) (laughs) yeah right (laughs) establish your cheating baseline early but (laughs) but the fact that like bauer at least according to the data seems about as blatant as it could possibly be and seemingly they didn't do anything you know i don't know if he was warned behind the scenes or anything but it, it doesn't seem like he stopped or that his spin rates fell so that was kind of confounding because that seemed like the situation where you could go after someone and you know i don't know if it's just that it would be such a pain to make trevor bauer the scapegoat and the poster boy or or what but they just didn't want the headache or maybe i don't know i could give them a pass i guess in that there was a pandemic so maybe foreign substances weren't the top priority they had a lot of other things on their mind Mm. (laughs) this year so i think it's you know i think it's just difficult (laughs) always to spot it i mean some guys are super obvious and they have it on the hat but like This is a question to David. Like, you know, there are a lot of tricks, right? There's a lot of ways people get around it. I mean, you're talking about the infielders. Like, you know, you could not even have any on yourself and just have your, you know, infielders have it on them. No, absolutely. There's a million different ways around it. And and when you start there, like you can hide it anywhere. You can do anything. The, The biggest thing is when you start creating a routine with how you move your hands, how you move your glove, then it becomes easy because then you just put it somewhere with the, where that routine is. Looking at the spin rates or the mm-hmm. stat cast with, with Hawkeye, with whatever you're going to use now, come on. I, how easy is the argument? Is well, I was trying a new grip. Oh, I put my arm in a different position today. Yeah, man, I, I, I did something yeah, differently. Yeah. And to be honest, from a organizational standpoint, knowing that raw data we get from the stadiums, dude, that, those numbers are way off sometimes too. Some stadiums are so blatantly bad that 
we had our own software basically like where we <laughs> changed basically the data because it was so bad from certain stadiums that you just knew it wasn't right. And so it's to look at that and, and trust that data and then to make a decision on somebody's career on it, dude, I would, from an organizational standpoint, I would be losing my, my ass. You'd have to, I'd be going you'd have crazy. to catch them in the act too. Yeah. You'd have to catch yeah. them in the act doing it. For me, it's, if somebody's obvious, that's the problem. Like, let's just be cool with this. Like if somebody's obviously using it and they're not being, trying to hide it, they're not being any coy at all. Come on, just like do what we did used to do, what they used to do in the eighties. They'd walk out there and be like, "Dude, come on, stop." You know, <laughs> I guess, but that's I don't like selective enforcement, man. You know, selective enforcement makes me right. feel bad. <laughs> then it makes me think that you could target a certain type of person, or you know, like one of the guys that got busted was Brandon Donnelly. Nobody liked him because he he was a strike buster. Yeah, you know, I mean. It's totally, it totally, it, it works for me that he got busted. You know, I totally understand it. Nobody likes that guy. Go and bust him. You know what I mean? Well, I think about, like, we always, I, I always tend to go back to the Pineda thing because I, I knew him when he first came up with the Mariners and I was with him with the Yankees. And I remember, uh, was it John Farrell, basically told him not to do it the next game. You know, he was managing the Red Sox. He basically said, if it's this obvious again, I'm going to call him out. And he made it more obvious. So it's like, come on, like for me, it's an understanding on the field. Let the managers and the only the managers be the only ones that can ever call it out. For me, it's then be a good ball player, be a man, like be be somebody out there that the other teams respect, so they let you do it. Or don't be, and you're going to get called out, and your career's going to be a lot shorter. So I guess the question is, well, there are a lot of questions related to this, but this one might just be an obvious one we need to address. Do we care? Like, do we? Within the game, do we care about this? You want to know why we care? Because Because there's cameras. I think that Mm. like there's the difficulty of enforcement, and that can be a a powerful disincentive to trying to enforce it because to Eno's point, you don't want to enforce it selectively. You want there to be some sort of consistency in the policy. But like, there's a lot of stuff that's hard, and we figure out how to do it anyway. So should we read the, the lack of enforcement around this as... Major League Baseball truly just not having yet figured out how to do it in a way that's consistent and fair? Or should we read it as them only caring so much as Trevor Bauer makes noise about it in public? And maybe there's another option in between those that is uh, the, the right answer. But I'm curious kind of what where you guys land on that. I have to say from my readership numbers and stuff, some people care a little bit, <laughs> but uh, uh, I wouldn't say that this is on the level of the, the Astro scandal or anything. The two reasons I care is I, I mentioned selective enforcement bugs me out. I don't, I don't like that it's still on the books so that at some point in a World Series game, someone could decide the stakes are high enough that they're going to bust this guy. You know, I don't like that sort of feeling that it could at any time become a big deal and it just hasn't because there's some sort of gentleman's agreement or something. I don't know. And the other thing I don't like is, uh, or that I find interesting about this is we're talking about ways to maybe reduce the impact of strikeouts on the game. We're talking mm-hmm. about ways generally, uh, it seems fandom and, and the people writing about the sport are talking about, do we have too many strikeouts in the game? And this could be a place where we reduce strikeouts. I don't know if it's the best one. There's other ways to do it, but it could be, I don't know. Well, with a reduce in, in strikeouts, you're going to up, you know, balls in play, right? Which what people want, you know? I mean, that's that's the sort of a stated thing that people want. I, I know as a pitcher, you don't want that. <laughs> oh, no. I strike everybody out. <laughs> make the game as boring as possible. My job is to make it boring. 
Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but as a fan, you could see maybe some people wanting more balls. Oh, balls and player at all time low. You know, maybe. it could be a thing. I wanted to go back to yeah. uh, like my kids' eight, eight year old baseball. It's all strikeouts. <laughs> it's boring though. I'll, I'll give you that. It's boring as heck. Yeah, I think it matters for that reason. But also, I think because, and you mentioned this in your piece too, Eno, but there's some potential for a scandal here. And it it doesn't seem like there's a complete coincidence that this memo from Chris Young, MLB's like on-field operations and, and discipline person, was sent around in February. It just seemed like maybe this was a response to the sign-stealing scandal and MLB looking around and saying, well, who else is cheating and how, and can we (laughs) What else could blow up on us like that, dude? (laughs) Yeah, let's try to get ahead of it this time. And I don't know if there's potential for the same sort of scandal because, again, everyone's doing it. And so maybe that makes it a little less scandalous in a way because, you know, it's not just one team that'll get singled out or two teams or whatever for doing things a certain way way like everyone's doing it but you know if a team won the world series and it were proven that they were all doing it then maybe it would be a scandal even if every other team was doing it or whatever maybe you know someone wins an award like what if trevor bauer comes out and admits what he did after he won the cy young award that doesn't look great so i would think that you know combined with the data that we have now on the spin rates which tells us how effective this is and how big a difference it makes it's just impossible to ignore now and i looked in my article to try to figure out if i could see what the actual impact is which is tough because there's no control group really because everyone's cheating all the time so how do you say i mean unless you have someone like Bauer or uh, someone you spoke to for your piece, you know, who can demonstrate in a lab with and without these certain types of substances, then it's hard to say. But if you do just look at like individual pitchers and how they do when they throw their pitches that have the the highest Bauer units, you can't even talk about this stuff without using the the name Bauer because (laughs) he has a stat named after him about spin rate. So it controls for velocity basically because of velocity and spin rate are correlated. So if you just look at the the highest Bauer unit pitches for individual pitchers, they do get higher whiff rates and, and better results on those pitches. And so because we have that and we have, you know, high definition cameras and everything, you can't pretend that it doesn't make a difference. And so I think there is some potential for this to blow up in MLB's face if they just don't do anything about it. So I, I kind of hope that they figure out either the tacky grip baseball that everyone's okay with or they just standardize a, a certain type of substance, which is what Bauer said that he wanted all along, not to have it banned, but to have it legalized to a, a certain extent. So it's just out there like a rosin bag. So one of those things just seems to me to be better than everyone kind of, you know, winking and nodding and getting away with it and some people doing it and others not doing it. And then the selective enforcement problem. Yeah, it's a it's a recipe for disaster. It seems like you I mean, I think you're setting it up right. Um, you know, I, I wonder like though if they give everyone a substance, if some people are like, well, there's a substance out there, but I like this stuff better, so I'm gonna keep right. using my stuff. Oh well, yeah. So. yeah, that's what's gonna happen. Uh, it's just gonna become they're gonna be using it anyways, exactly what they want to use. And and the thing about it is, if everybody's pretty much doing it, hasn't it just become standardized, and that's what the pitches normal, are. Yeah, you know, and and eventually the hitters are gonna adjust to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's where we've settled in. I don't think that baseball is in a rush to change the ball. I mean, that's 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 one feeling I get from reporting and also just looking at how the different ball has uh, 
led to a headache. I mean, I I first asked Manfred about it like five years ago, you know. So I, I feel like they they don't want to open up that sort of situation again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if that's the direction that the solution lies, I think we could be waiting for a long time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. All right. Well, before we let you go. David, could I ask you one more question on a, a different subject? You were with the Blue Jays the, the last couple seasons working in player development. You were the pitching rehab coordinator this past season, and you're not going to be back with them next year. They let go of or didn't renew a, a bunch of people in player development, which is happening all over the game, in part because of COVID, in part because of the minor league contraction. What do you think is going to happen to player development across the game, I guess, between this year and no minor league season and the setbacks that came with that and the contraction of the minors and just some of the downsizing that we're seeing across the sport? What will the impact be on the players who are coming up now? I think the initial impact, I I think where it's going to really be felt is a lot of those players that needed an opportunity, guys that were 6th to 20th rounders, guys that just needed somewhere to play for a couple of years and then they hit their maturity, then they hit their, that's when they become really good. We're going to miss that in the game. And in five years, six years, when we don't have that crop of players, it's going to be, it's going to be tough because you're, you're not going to see a lot of those guys that should have had opportunities. At the same time, guys will always fill their spot where I think it, I think it's really tough losing two um, affiliates. Like the Blue Jays are, are losing two affiliates. That's, that's amazing. Like losing that many coaches, that much staff, especially when Major League Baseball was growing. I mean, we were adding staff left and mm-hmm. right. And so a lot of people yeah. are getting opportunities that never would have gotten chances getting hired out of college was a lot of these guys. So you, you're now you're cutting back even more. You're losing guys that had chances that are, that are leaving the game. And so that, that's tough. It's tough to see. But honestly, Major League Baseball was doing great. Until COVID hit, Major League Baseball is doing wonderful, and they're, they're still going to do well. If, if As long as things open up, as long as you allow fans, what we're going to see in, in a couple years, I wouldn't doubt we, we added an affiliate back. I think when you see the money coming back in the game, you're going to see growth again. You're going to see organizations bringing guys back in because at the end of the day, data is not going away. Technology is not going away. The amount of cameras we use, the amount of information – like. Every day we're assessing our players, like from on the field to off the field in so many different ways. That stuff, not we're not getting less of that. We're getting more and more and more. And so the manpower and the brain power it takes to, to just go through that, like, you're going to need staff. You're going to need a lot of guys. So even though this year basically is going to be like a reset, sometimes you take two steps back to go three forward. And that's all I see is like this is just a reset based of financially and then it's gonna they're gonna go full steam ahead so if anybody is discouraged about opportunities in baseball don't be because in two years they're gonna be full steam ahead again hiring looking for people smart bright people that are looking to try to figure their way through major league baseball they're gonna be looking for them i hope that's the case that's uh i guess a an uplifting note that we can end on here so you can all find David on Twitter at the DA53, and you can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saracen. Of course, can read him and listen to him at The Athletic. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening, and please do check out the show page where we always put links to the videos and articles and research we discussed on the show. We've gotten a bunch of responses to what Sam and I discussed on our previous episode about rules changes that one could make if one wanted to preserve a difference between the AL and the NL in the era of the universal DH. A lot of people suggested banning the shift in one league. Others suggested, for instance, keeping the runner on second in extra innings rule in one league and not the other. Some people suggested other variations on that, so one league has replay and another doesn't. Or same thing with the three batter minimum, seven inning double headers, mound visit limits, etc. Then you would have sort of the traditionalist versus non-traditionalist debates that the DH used to engender, but just with all these other new rules. So thanks for all the suggestions, and maybe we will discuss some next week. In the meantime, you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Amelia Matler, Colin, Paul Heyman, Timoteo Cobertizzo, and Eric Edston. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Megan Sam coming via email at podcastofangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. We all think that we are nobody, but everybody is somebody else's somebody.